0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can
1: preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice.
0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I'm joined by Haven Pell, who is the pundificator on the internet with his blog and other media representation. We are going to take on a topic today that everyone has been either bored to death or riveted by, and that is the impeachment process and what it means for re-election going forward. Haven, welcome aboard.
1: Thanks, Fraser. Nice to be
0: here again and an interesting topic at hand. We've now got, depending on which legal theory you subscribe to, the third impeachment of a U.S. president with Mr. Trump, although the articles have not been delivered to the Senate yet, so I guess it's controversial as to whether the president has actually been impeached. We're at a strange point in the impeachment process right now where... Essentially, the House has gone through its investigation. They've voted on and approved two articles of impeachment, and the knife is hanging over the president as it relates to whether the articles are going to get a trial or not in the Senate. From your perspective, where do you think things are going to start moving? From where I sit, the Senate's judgment is probably fait accompli at this point, but going through a trial opens up a whole different Pandora's box.
1: For sure. The desire on the part of the Senate Republicans, they after all still have 53 senators and therefore they have the majority and therefore Mitch McConnell makes the rules, much as Nancy Pelosi did in the House, is likely to benefit the president as they shift from one arena to the other. Absent a big development, very few people expect that the trial will result in two thirds of the senators, which would need to include 20 out of 53 Republicans voting to remove the president from office on either count. That leaves aside what is in election terms called the October surprise, where some giant development occurs and it changes everybody's calculation. And obviously, if you have insight as to such a development, you're miles ahead of me because I don't. But there could be one. And so who knows? I think that the safest assumption is that the sort of boiling the frog approach that is sort of drip, drip, drip on the part of the president's opponents of here's another terrible thing that he said or did or another stylistic outrage. It doesn't seem to change opinion very much. And if it doesn't change opinion, it will not change Republican votes. So the goal, I think, for the president is to have some sort of a trial or non-trial that checks the box and results in an acquittal. And so then he says his spin is, I was acquitted. The House was wrong. They brought a prosecution that failed and so that he then trades on that information. And I think the Democrats expect that to be the outcome. So they don't want to give him the opportunity to trade on that information. They don't want to give him that talking point.
0: It just feels strange to me that the calculus on this from the Democratic side is that they sort of look at the process. I think there's an understanding that an acquittal is extremely likely in the Senate. From a PR perspective, from a political, capital perspective, I feel like they're spending a lot for something that looks like they're driving a car into the brick wall.
1: You're probably not going to read that in a lot of newspapers or see it in certain TV stations that tend to find fault with the president. The other side says exactly that. And cartoons, conservative cartoons that show Thelma and Louise driving the car off the cliff with... (laughs) Pelosi in one of the two roles, they're there. Now, which one is right? You see a left side narrative and a right side narrative and which one is correct. They're pretty good at making the narrative sound good. And you say, oh, yeah, I read that and that makes sense. And I get that. And yet there are two competing narratives and you don't know which one is going to prevail.
0: One part that confuses me a little bit, and when they were putting together the two articles of impeachment, the first one, I can see both sides of that issue. On one hand, the president says, didn't commit a crime. The Democratic side, they say, you abused the power of the office. That, to me, is a trial of fact, and you determine something, and that's worth investigating. The second article, which gets a lot of publicity, which, to me, the obstruction article baffles me a little bit because it seems to me that the Republicans, whether or not they come from a good place, they are using the court system to determine what are really sort of difficult legal questions. And to impeach someone over that is crazy. And sort of Tulsi Gabbard voted present on that particular article, and she got sort of predictably interesting crossfire from the Democratic side and praise from the Republican side for that. Did the Democrats make a tactical misfire on that front? That second article to me just seems crazy. Why not just go with the one article and put that out front there and go for it?
1: Well, obstructing Congress. I mean, there's one thing. I mean, we think of sort of obstruction of justice. Okay, probably we've all seen enough cop shows and so forth to have a general sense of what that's about but the obstruction of Congress is something that presidents do all the time. And I think the interesting thing in terms of the first one is I think everybody pretty much understands that the United States government uses leverage over other countries to achieve governmental objectives. We have a policy that we want. We maybe want people to support us in the UN. We want to do various things, The key is that whatever leverage or arm twisting that we may do to another country, and we do it all the time, is for the benefit of the country as a whole. And here you have a situation in which the accusation is there was arm twisting, but it was for the benefit of the president himself, and that that that's an arguable abuse of power, and that's an interesting discussion. As for obstruction of Congress... Both you and I are lawyers. I left it in part because I thought that it was insufficiently aimed at getting to the actual guilt or innocence, truth or falsehood. And I thought it was just way too much sort of process for what advantage can I get, no matter how unethical it is to get it. But we're kind of used to the idea that legal battles are returning to the idea of trial by combat. And so the idea of the president obstructing Congress happens all the time. That's not new news. And using the courts to do so, I would think that the American Trial Lawyers Association wouldn't be necessarily too thrilled with that idea that maybe there's excessive use of courts. I'm with you. The first one seems more powerful than the second one doesn't seem to have made too much of a difference. 230 Democrats voted for the first one, 229 for the second one. There were two crossovers of Democrats joining with the Republicans to vote no on the first one, three on the second one. The one independent voted yes to both. And otherwise it was absolutely straight party line. Makes you wonder what would happen if you took all of the facts exactly as they are and simply reversed one, which was the identity of the party? And would all those blue yeses have become blue noes and the red noes have become red yeses if you had simply changed the party of the
0: president? One of the things that is sort of looking into history of impeachment's non-presidential They can be for alcoholism, essentially. They can be for bribery. They can be for all sorts of things. You know, we get back to the concept of high crimes and misdemeanors. The charge that Trump abused his power in potentially sort of exacting political gain for himself, again, I think is a trial by fact. But when I went back and looked at some of these things, and this apparently happens a lot more with judges than anybody else, but. The concept that this is a purely political component really sort of rises to the fore in my head. And one thing that scares me a little bit about what's happened here, whether Trump is right or wrong, definitely sort of something that should be sort of tried by fact. Is this something that rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors? Who knows? But given the way this has been framed out and given the way that this has really fallen across partisan lines, have we cheapened the concept of impeachment? Is this something that's going to be used as a partisan tool far more frequently than it has been in the past. I mean, I look back and given a horrible set of circumstances or a particularly partisan Congress, you could go after Carter for maybe overstepping his bounds in pursuing certain policies or going after Reagan for Iran-Contra or going after Bush or Obama or Clinton They went after Clinton for perjury. Is this going to become more frequent and therefore in many ways more distracting and therefore less effective uh, check and balance than was envisioned by the framers.
1: I think that's very fair. I mean in yours and my lifetime we have had 3. Yeah, so in 45 years from Nixon, Clinton, Trump there have been 3 of them. And then you go back to Andrew Johnson as the first in the more than 200 years you've had 4 total and 3 of them are in a quarter of the time. So the rate of impeaching people has clearly moved up dramatically. I think it's a mistake because I think it's too draconian a political remedy. It seems to me that the people who have the better side of the argument are the ones who encourage the process to be bipartisan. It seems to me that's the better side of the argument.
0: Well, the part two that scares, maybe too strong a word, but concern and. I don't think is too severe, is the fact that the political process has become so media-driven. And the first fulcrum point is usually the Nixon-Kennedy televised debates as it relates to everyone saw Nixon sweating on TV and Kennedy looked the part and was suntanned and calm, cool, and reserved. That had a major ramification on the political discourse in this country. I would argue that Trump's use of Twitter is that kind of fulcrum event in the future, and we've now had three in the last 45 years, three impeachments that is, I could see that further accelerating. In many ways, once you've found the cookie jar, it's not too hard to go back in and reach in and get another chocolate chip cookie as it suits your purposes. I worry that the polarization of the country is being stitched together with a method of influencing discourse that is cheapening a lot of the checks and balances that we've kind of taken for granted up this far?
1: It's going to diminish the value of the tool. I mean, the word impeach still has a meaning. It is not one in which you would like your own name to appear in the same sentence with. And it has clout. If it gets used every time your side doesn't have the presidency, then it's going to lose its clout. It's just going to become a political tactic like lying and not to prejudge whether this is a right one or a wrong one, the frequency, there ought to be some intermediate steps that reserve this for the sort of majesty that I think it was designed for. I mean, it's supposed to be rare and for something pretty egregious, and maybe this is, but I completely am on board with your point that if it gets overused, then there will be many times when it isn't. And maybe partisanship is a good way to determine whether it's being overused. Personally, I would have kept the filibuster rule. I would have kept the idea that it took 60 votes to do pretty much anything in the Senate, simply because that would draw people back to the middle. Now, that's not politically for fundraisers and for political consultants and so forth. The middle is not a happy place because it doesn't do anything for their businesses they want as much polarization as possible because it raises more money and pays their paychecks. It's disappointing that steps that draw people towards the middle are becoming more rare.
0: I guess another part that I don't understand, we've got Nancy Pelosi withholding articles at the moment until she thinks she gets what she describes as a fair trial. And I'm not quite sure what sort of conditions she and Chuck Schumer are going to exact from Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader who essentially controls the process from the Senate side of things. Again, you look at the numbers in 53 Republicans in the Senate, you need two thirds to convict and kick out Trump. I'm not sure what she's trying to achieve. And then the second part there is, had they had it to do over again, do you think they would have voted to censure Trump? Trump, so that they got on record that they strictly disapproved of his conduct, but then didn't pursue a strategy and the tactics that may run their party up on the rocks.
1: Well, no doubt, we don't see every poll that gets taken. And so there's considerable private polling. And I don't doubt for a moment that every detail of the strategy that has been followed by both parties has been carefully polled to have a pretty good idea of what the outcome is gonna be. And during this primary season, where we know that sort of middle of the road voters don't participate this early in the political process, and that it is mostly the wings of the two parties that are interested, they're more, more likely to volunteer, they're more likely to show up for a primary election, they're more likely to give money, that's who you're catering to during this season and come August and September, the candidates will begin to cater to the more moderate voters on both sides. But for the moment, the left side of the Democratic Party is very keen on having this go forward in the most disadvantageous way for the president. Whether it is simply publicity, spin, talking points, because they know that there won't be a conviction, there is value to those three things. And that's gives them an advantage.
0: Let's go through what we're probably agreeing is a low probability and Trump is removed. Mike Pence becomes president of the United States. Everybody moves up one, essentially. To me, we haven't read much about it because I think most people have baked into the notion that this is extremely unlikely to happen. But if it does, the Republicans in many ways, I think, shift further right than having Trump in place. You have a more traditional political playbook. And then the Democrats, they have a devil that they don't know as well in power right before an election which may have benefits or in the resultant chaos helps them win out. But where do you see that going? I mean, it obviously can go in a thousand directions with a bunch of different players that we haven't even sort of drummed up yet. But you put Pence in office. Where do they go from here?
1: Well, I think a lot depends on timing. Let's say that the Senate voted on the 10th of January to impeach the president and Pence became president on the 11th of January. He then has more or less 11 months to create his own campaign and so forth. Now let's say that that same event occurred on the 10th of September instead of the 10th of January. And suddenly the nominee after the Republican convention has now been impeached. Frankly, I don't remove from office. Could he run for office again if he had been removed? That's a really interesting question. It certainly has never happened before, but it would be extremely disadvantageous. Now, the other thing that is going on that is kind of in parallel is that the president is because he controls the Republican Party, he can influence the rules quite substantially. And one of the influences, why bother to have primaries? If I'm the one who's going to be nominated, that is to the disadvantage of candidates like Bill Wells, who would like to debate the president, who would like to make him look bad from a different perspective. And yet, those opportunities, those potential battles, are being removed from the calendar. And if Pence was suddenly the president in January, February, March, There might be a whole lot of other Republicans who would be pretty interested in challenging him, and yet the mechanics for holding primaries on different days and a real convention and all of those things, those mechanics wouldn't have been done. The logistics wouldn't have happened. And so you could imagine to remove a nominee, remove a president slash nominee, at a moment where there was nothing you could do about it would provide a huge advantage in the subsequent election.
0: I'm just reading the end of the Times article we both read to sort of us for the impeachment process. It looks like the Senate can vote to disqualify the president from future office. That just requires a majority vote. So presumably, if he gets removed, there are enough votes to foreclose future election for him. Here's an
1: interesting scene to imagine The president has been invited by the Speaker of the House to deliver the State of the Union address in early February, and he has accepted the invitation. Let's imagine that in early February, the trial is not completed. For whatever reason, whether it's ongoing or hasn't begun, whatever, it is not completed. Now, everybody, all the senators, all the House members, Most of the cabinet, all but one, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Supreme Court, all of those people are assembled in one room to listen to the speech of somebody who is at the time subject to impeachment. And it strikes me as unlikely that the president will suddenly change his tune from his normal approach to things. Is the State of the Union Address going to become a political firestorm with accusations and vilification going both ways and people screaming and yelling and the equivalent of the you lie comment that happened a few years ago? Is that what it's going to look like? That's a sort of a big political event is the State of the Union. People put a lot of the political class values it pretty highly, although it to some degree has become a simply a listing of favored talking points that lobbyists can get into the speech itself for a little bit of publicity. But that could be a giant battle.
0: <laughs> well, be, you know, I could envision from a stagecraft perspective delivering the articles of impeachment right there to the Senate <laughs> and just have it be complete theater, which would be. I think extremely disruptive and probably counterproductive but again if you're looking for aha moments and perry mason events and things like that maybe that's something that's popping up
1: (laughs) the sergeant at arms who has the high honor and distinct privilege of presenting the president of the united states imagine that that was either preceded or followed by somebody else walking in and saying, I have the high honor and distinct privilege of delivering
0: the articles of impeachment. I mean, beyond possibility, I don't know. I don't know where this ends. Well, let's veer back to what we think is the likely event that Trump gets acquitted after some form of a trial. So then he's left with, in many ways, having been attacked Essentially, twice by the Democratic Party through its various sort of methods via the Mueller investigation and now an impeachment process. He's dealing with that. He's got at the moment a robust uh, or seemingly robust economy. The reelection bid becomes more likely. I think his public statements, which seem to offend everybody in different ways, at every chance he gets, the lowering of the bar of discourse gets lower and lower each time. Are we in a situation where the results and the tactics that have been used against him are now sort of stockpiling political capital that he's going to be able to go into October, November riding high?
1: Well, I think you're seeing it already. Emphasis on the idea and as a part of the Democratic Party have been trying to impeach him since the time of his inauguration before he had done a single thing. I think he is endeavoring to portray that zealousness as you just don't like me and there is it's just animus and you didn't accept the result of the election. Will that play out? It won't play out among the people who don't like him, but he's not expecting them to vote for him anyway. Will it create a sort of a sympathy among more people, more than just his sort of base of support. It might. I think he's hoping that it does. And it could indeed be disadvantageous to the Democrats. And I don't think it's a surprise that Speaker Pelosi didn't want to do this. And she kind of had to do it because she was pushed by a component of her caucus to do so. So I think it could. I think it could bounce back.
0: One of the crazy parts too, I mean, there's two parts to an election. You have the incumbent and then you have the challengers and the Democrats are sorting through their process to come up with their nominee. I think the thing that if I were a democratic voter, I would look at and say, geez, what are we doing here? Is the impeachment process, in a sense, could throw the nomination process, create that kind of anti-Trump and where someone who has the charisma or wattage and maybe the radicalism to stand up to that particular person when in fact maybe a move closer to the middle and maybe closer toward temperance or a reserved nature may be what wins the election, do we think that the the media and the polling has become so distorted that the decision makers of the decisions of the king makers or queen makers? in the party is getting distorted? And is that the risk that the Democrats run as they try to sort themselves out here?
1: Well, looking at it from the Democratic perspective, which is quite reasonable, one is inclined to say the perfect is the enemy of the good. And while somebody might be a diehard fan of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, who presently seem to be occupying the sort of furthest left part of the Democratic Party, if the idea was that they would stand a lower chance of beating the president, wouldn't it make sense for a Democrat to say, well, yes, I might like what Elizabeth Warren is offering, but I'm inclined to accept Biden or Tulsi Gabbard or somebody who might be more appealing to more people. I'd rather win than be perfect. Yes, it should certainly be a calculus, but we're probably not, from a timing perspective, we're probably not ready for that yet. For the moment, every aspect of the party is dreaming of its perfect candidate, and reality isn't likely to set in until spring. I think both parties have swung the pendulum too much towards democratic selection of the nominee fine to have Democratic choices between the two nominees. That's great. But it would be lovely if each party was sort of felt the obligation to serve up a really solid, qualified, excellent ticket and then let the votes fall where they may. If you have less good candidates, then it makes the stakes higher.
0: So I think one of the things that the Democratic Party is going to remember is that they're going to remember to look at the electoral map as they develop strategy again. And with that in mind, there are three big states that they absolutely 100% have to win. And I think Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin are the three big ones that they kind of let slip through their fingers in the last election. And then you have some of the other battleground states, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, maybe Minnesota, New Mexico, New Hampshire, theoretically Virginia. And this may be naivete on my part. Who is really thinking about that on the Democratic side? Because ultimately, if the goal here, if removal of Trump isn't likely, is to to win the presidency to me, in sort of guiding the principles for those candidates that are going to really resonate in those sections, I would think that would be job one. And it seems to be something that we're not picking up much on in the debates. We're not really picking much up on it from even the candidates. I wonder when that discourse starts to really happen.
1: Uh, well, as it gets close, I think you're exactly right. If I am a candidate, if I'm Andrew Yang, if I'm whoever, whichever candidate it is, whether they're at the top of the polls or the bottom of the polls, my current thought is entirely focused on how do I beat the other ones? Because if I don't beat the other ones, nothing else matters. And who is doing the hard thinking about step two after there's a nominee? I don't think it's the political campaigns themselves. And they're sort of independent freestanding entities and they have their related enterprises, their super PACs and their nonprofits and their various different things that funnel money and their kind of support groups that all go along with this parade for each candidate. Elizabeth Warren is just thinking about being the nominee. Joe Biden is just thinking about being the nominee. So I don't think you're getting the the kind of answers to the question that you legitimately raise from those sectors now within the democratic party itself which is supposed to be neutral as to the selection of their nominee who is thinking about what happens next my guess is it's happening there
0: and quietly i would add and he may not get this far but i think bloomberg is thinking about that i think he's focused on 17 to 22 states and the ones where he thinks he can pour money in and create an advantage. Now, all of that's for the good if you end up becoming the nominee. If you don't, then maybe you think about becoming independent, but that's a different process and a far more difficult one. I just wonder whether his influence is going to start really taking hold. He's pouring money in right now. It's a slow Well, maybe not slow. It's sort of it's a quieter version. He's not participating in the debates. I think he feels like he doesn't have to at this point. But his path to the nomination and ultimately being an effective general election candidate seems to be at odds with the Democratic Party's process. Maybe it'll work.
1: I think to slightly modify something that you said, I think he would love to participate in the debates, but he is ineligible. And the reason that he's ineligible is because the debate requirements themselves include a fundraising component, and he is choosing to self-fund his campaign. So he isn't going to be eligible for any debate, no matter how many more there are, because his fundraising number is zero. One could ask an interesting question as to whether that is a good criterion. It is certainly popular within political parties, people who can bring money into political parties I mean that's you get a check mark for that that's a good thing to do but whether you want to make it a criteria for the debate itself is at least a little bit of a head scratcher one thing that I think is going to be very interesting at the moment he is criticized for buying the election okay and the people who haven't the resources that he has are logically criticizing exactly that let's say he became the nominee Do you think that the same people who were criticizing him for buying the election when they were competing with him are going to criticize him for buying the election when he is their nominee? I don't think so. That doesn't seem like something that is going to happen. And at that point, they're delighted that they have the richest guy available who may be able to buy the election better than the other guy.
0: It's one of those things that I think it's a disingenuous comment because everybody's buying the election and they're really just arguing about who's financing it.
1: Right. And so I would be thrilled to see Michael Bloomberg in the race, effectively in the race, still in the race in June, July, August. I would love to see Michael Bloomberg. I think he's probably as close to reflecting my views and where I would like to see things as virtually anyone. I have not been able to make progress towards becoming a populist of either variety, either left side or right. I can't get there. So Bloomberg strikes
0: me as a very interesting alternative. As I tell people, once he got his bearings here, he made New York City run like a top, which in my mind New York mayor is the second most difficult political job in the country, if not maybe if not the first. You're right in front of your constituency on a day-to-day basis, and he seemed to thrive in it, and he did a lot of different things that made things work a lot better and I'd like to see more of his commentary in the public discourse you know, whether or not it works from his gun stances and some of his concepts around sort of banning sort of gallon sizes of soda and some of his other components, which may not work in the rest of the country. But I think his work in New York City has not gotten much attention beyond New York City borders, maybe Los Angeles and some other places. And I think it would benefit the Democrats to let him in and talk about what he does a little bit better than, than maybe some other people are talking about.
1: Well, he certainly has the resources to advertise his message. And it may be an untraditional way to get there, but it may be that come time for the Democratic Convention, and again, there will be lots and lots of internal polling, there will be lots of head-to-head, and whoever is still in the hunt at that point There will be different views as to which ones are more likely to beat the president. And at that point, the desire to beat the president will overcome the desire to be the nominee. And I think you'll see exactly what you're looking for, but I think you'll see it in six or seven months time.
0: In a non-traditional form. That's how we got the current president. He was non-traditional too. Yep. Yep. Anyway, well, we're going to have a lot more to talk about politically in the coming months, so we'll maybe we'll shut it off from here and sort of stick with the impeachment component. Haven, great to speak with you again, and we'll follow this line of thinking up in our next podcast.
1: Thank you, Fraser. I'm looking forward to that. And thanks very much for including me and a very interesting conversation as always.
0: Terrific. You've been listening to the Wealth Actually podcast with Fraser Rice. I've been speaking with Haven Pell, who is the pundificator on his blog and other online medium. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book, Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.